You are listening to the audio preaching podcast from Heritage Baptist Church in Corpus Christi, Texas, led by Pastor Johnny Chen. Our church is dedicated to serving Jesus Christ and reaching the world by going forward with the gospel. We pray that you will be helped and blessed by this message from God's Word. Ecclesiastes asks this question, what is the purpose of life here? What's the profit of life here? It was written around 941 to 930 B.C. The time period that it covers is really indefinite. Uh, The author is Solomon. There are some people that try to dispute this fact. It's Solomon. It is very obviously Solomon. Uh, First of all, from external um, evidences, but many internal evidences as well. Solomon is the author. The audience is really all of mankind. I want us to read again the first three verses. Let's read them all together here. Remember, we're going to take our time with this. I'm I'm only going to get through the first seven chapters. Uh, There's 12 chapters total, but the the last ones really have a lot of meat to them. And uh, we're just going to get through the first seven. How many of you struggle with the book of Ecclesiastes? Understanding it, not only why it's written, but what is written. Many of us. So let's take our time, and let's make sure that we get these answers down, okay? Um, I don't have all the answers, but we're trusting that the Lord will give some clarity here, okay? Let's read it, verse 1, all together. Verse 1 through 3. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? So let me give a disclaimer here at the beginning. This book is one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible. It's one of the most criticized books in the Bible. And yet, it is one of the most important books of the Bible. I believe because it is so important, that is why it is criticized. I believe because it is so misunderstood, that is why it is often avoided. I heard some people even this morning saying when they get to Ecclesiastes in their Bible reading, they just, okay, (laughs) I'm just not quite sure what's going on. Why is he saying what he is saying? Whereas the book of Psalms and John and a lot of the epistles, they kind of live in fame. They're just beautiful. Ecclesiastes seems to live in infamy. Uh, There are some who see Ecclesiastes as a book of pessimism. And certainly there are some uh, portions in the book. And I mean, right away as you read the book, the the first three verses seems very pessimistic. And you see this pattern of sadness and darkness through it all. There's verses that mention hating life or saying that death is better than birth. But whoa, 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 you got to take a step back and you got to see the book as a whole. Okay, if you focus in on one part of a picture, you can come to a lot of different conclusions. We need to focus on the book as a whole. There are some people that say the book of Ecclesiastes is a book of skepticism. And again, you can read verses when you read alone. When you read them alone, they just give the impression that things like good and evil and heaven and hell and judgment and justice, it gives the impression that all of those things are just these man-made fancies that really don't hold any value. Look at the whole picture. So stay with me throughout it all, okay? Uh, and it's going to be over a couple of weeks, but stay, with, stay through. 
There are some who so greatly misunderstand the message of Ecclesiastes, there are some people who say it shouldn't even be in the Bible. There are some atheists and agnostics and, and people who um, criticize the text in the Bible who say if um, Ecclesiastes was not in the Bible, the Bible would be more complete. Now, there are indeed verses and portions of this book that seem to completely contradict other parts in the Bible. And you'll see some of those tonight. But yet again, when you look at the book as a whole, it fits perfectly, doesn't contradict, it complements everything. And I'll explain how that works in a little bit. But it's perfectly aligned, and it's perfectly aligned with one of the greatest truths in the Bible. In fact, I would go so far as to say you would be hard-pressed to find another book in the Bible that so clearly magnifies this truth as Ecclesiastes. Now, what is this truth? The truth is this. This life here is not all there is. That is the truth. The truth is that when we only live for this life, we will never be satisfied. The truth is that our purpose in this life is not found in this life. It is found in God. No other book in the Bible, I would go so far as to say, teaches that truth like Ecclesiastes does. Howbeit, it teaches it in kind of a way that seems strange to us, that seems harsh to us. But in order to teach this truth, Solomon uses a key word and a key phrase. You should write them down because they're important to remember. The key word is vanity. Vanity, we need to understand what it is. We need to define it properly. There are people who say that vanity means meaningless. That's not right. It's not right. Vanity means unsatisfying. It means profitless. It means emptiness. It's not that it's completely meaningless. It's that it's just... Where is the satisfaction in it? That is what vanity means. And we can see immediately, again, how people view this book as very pessimistic, when right away, the author, Solomon, is saying, vanity of vanities, everything is empty, everything is pointless, everything is unsatisfying. That dives you right into the book. But further than that, the word vanity is not only talking about the dissatisfaction of this life, it's talking about the mystery of it, it's talking about the fragility of it. And when you put all those things together, see how it works, you cannot control this life. You can't control what happens to you, what comes your way. Because you can't control it, you can't understand it. Because you can't understand it, how are you going to find fulfillment in it? How are you going to figure it out? so that you can get something from it. So the key word is what? Vanity. The key phrase is under the sun. Here is where people miss the entire message of Ecclesiastes. The key phrase is under the sun or under heaven, he says at, at one point. Do you recognize this verse from the book of Ecclesiastes? 
For everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven. That is the key phrase. The, the key phrase under the sun is referring to life on this earth and this life alone. And if we do not understand that when he is speaking in Ecclesiastes, he is talking about this life and this life alone, we will completely miss the message of the book. What we have in the book of Ecclesiastes is this. We have the honest testimony of a man who lived a large portion of his life with only this life in mind. This is his testimony. The man is called the preacher. This man lost his view of eternity. This man, he never stops believing in God, but he loses his fear of the Lord. Remember, what is the fear of the Lord? Understanding that God is watching and that our earthly decisions bring divine consequences. He never stops believing in God, and he talks about God throughout the book, but he lost his fear of the Lord. His only concern is the here and now. So what did he find? What did he conclude from his experiment, from his time just focusing on life under the sun? Well, this book can be divided into four sections, and they're a little difficult here. But part one is chapter one, verse one through 15. Part two is chapter one, 16 through chapter 11, verse eight. Part three is chapter 11, verse nine to chapter 12, verse seven. And chapter four is chapter, I'm sorry, part four is chapter 12, verse eight through 12, 14. Let me repeat those for you. Chapter one, verse one through 15 is part one. Chapter one, 16 through 11, eight is part two. 11, nine through 12, seven is part three. 12, 8 through 12, 14 is part 4. Part 1 is the preacher's idea presented. He's going to present his idea to us. Part number 2, the largest part of the book, is the preacher's idea supported. Part number 3 is the preacher's idea refuted. He was wrong. Part number 4 is the preacher's idea concluded. Did anybody, anybody need me to repeat that? I want us to get this. What do you need? Part one is chapter one, verse one through 15. That's the preacher's idea presented. Part two is chapter 116 through 11.8. That's the preacher's idea supported. Part three is 11.9 through 12.7. That's the preacher's idea refuted. Part four is 12, eight through 12, 14. The preacher's idea concluded. So let's talk about part one. The preacher's idea presented in chapter one. What is his idea? His idea 
is life under the sun has no purpose. It's empty, it's pointless, it's vanity. And he presents this idea by asking a question in verse 3. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? Now, when we hear this question, we are tempted to answer back immediately. Solomon, obviously, there's profit in this life. But before he even gives us an opportunity to answer his question, he gives us a few things to think about. In verse 4 through 11 of this chapter 1, he says, I want you to think about the constant march of time, and I want you to think about the order of the universe. My idea is that life under the sun has no purpose. We want to come back right away and say, well, you're wrong. And he says, before you say I'm wrong, think about the constant march of time and think about the order of the universe. People like us come and go. Generations come and generations go. The sun rises and the sun sets. The wind blows and yet it returns again. Rivers flow into the sea and yet the sea is never full because the sea evaporates and then water condenses and then it comes down in rain back right into that same river and the cycle repeats itself all over again. And then here we come, humans, and maybe we live 70 years. And no matter what you do, you are not going to stop the constant march of time, and you are not going to alter the order of the universe. No matter what you do, you won't stop those things. So look in verse 9. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. And that which is done is that which shall be done. And there is no new thing under the sun. Is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new? It hath been already of old time which was before us. There is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after. Through the march of time, at some point, no matter what you do, you will be forgotten. That's his first thing that he wants us to think about. Here's the second thing he wants us to think about in verse 12 through 15. He says, I want you to think about who you're talking with. I was the king of the greatest nation in the world. Look at verse 13. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. There's that key phrase again. Look at how he describes life. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. That which is crooked cannot be made straight, and that which is wanting cannot be numbered. Before you answer my question, remember the march of time, remember the order of the universe, and no matter what you do, you will not alter those things. And before you want to argue with me, remember who I am. I am the wisest person who has ever walked on this earth. I, I reigned over the greatest kingdom that this world has ever seen. Now, he's being a little proud right now, but we understand in a little bit, uh, he's kind of a mess right now with his mind. But is anybody quick to answer Solomon at this point? Can we refute the fact that there is a constant march of time and there is an order to the universe? No, we can't refute that. Can we refute his accomplishments? No, we can't. So if how we live this life will never change the foundations of the world, and if everything is destined to be forgotten, then what's the point? That's Solomon's idea. 
What's the point if life is nothing more than a sore travail that God has given to the sons of men to be exercised therewith? Then I don't want to be exercised therewith. That's his idea. And that leads us to part two, the preacher's idea supported. In this largest part of the book, he's going to give testimony. He's going to give you his own experiences. He's going to tell you of certain observations that he's had in order to support this idea that he has. And in verse 16 through 18 of chapter 1, he says, I used to believe that my wisdom and that my knowledge would bring purpose and satisfaction to my life. Now remember, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. Now you have a question right now. If Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived, then how could he be so foolish? And we'll answer that question later, okay? But he was the wisest man who ever lived. However, right now, what is he focusing on? He is focusing on life under the sun. So when he says, I I gave my heart to seek wisdom and knowledge, is he talking about godly wisdom or is he talking about worldly wisdom? Worldly wisdom under the sun. I gave my life to seek that out. And he says, I did very well. I became more wise than anybody that had ever been before me in Jerusalem. My heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. 1 Kings 4.33 says Solomon knew about plants and trees and beasts and birds and insects and fish. He knew about all of it. But the day came when he realized all he knew was vanity. All he knew was vanity and vexation of spirit. He says, in fact, the more I learned, the more unhappy I was. So in chapter 2, he says, I'm done with learning. Kids, have you ever felt that way in school? I'm done with learning. Chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes is your motto right here. Are you ready? Solomon says, I'm done with learning. I'm done with studying. I'm going to have fun. That's what he says in chapter 2. He says, but I found out this is also vanity. And he explains why. He drank. He built He partied. The Bible says he laid hold on folly. He said, I had all my wisdom. Now I'm searching after folly. I'm just going to do what I want. He built. He planted. He amassed servants and cattle and animals and money, musicians, all these different things. And just as he had more wisdom than anyone before him in Jerusalem, now he had more possessions than anyone before him in all of Jerusalem. Look in verse 10. Whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy. I was having fun. But then the fun stopped. Verse 11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit and there was no profit under the sun. He said, I, at this point now, I had pursued both wisdom and folly, he continues in the chapter. And here's what he came to realize. I have found both wisdom and folly. And in verse 13, he says, wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. I've had my fill of both of them. I will say this, wisdom is much better. A much better choice. The wise man walks in light. The fool walks in darkness. But then I thought of something. Whether you're wise or you're a fool, you both die. And as time marches on, people don't remember a wise man any more than they remember a foolish man. 
So in verse 17, therefore, I hated life. Solomon, what's going on? This is Solomon. Therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. He spent all his time building and planting and working, but then he realizes after I die, I have to leave it to somebody. And what if I leave it to a complete fool that, that ruins everything that I spent my entire life building? And by the way, he did. So in verse 20 through 23, he basically says, what a waste of my time. He starts walking to all his vineyards and his plants and his buildings. Waste, waste, waste of time. And he says, one man can spend his entire life building something only to leave it to somebody who never worked one second for it. So after all of your labor under the sun, what will you have to show for it? And at the end of this chapter, he reaches his first conclusion. In chapter 24, uh, verse 24 through 26, wow, I cannot talk. 24 through 26, he reaches his first conclusion. Since life under the sun is vanity, eat, drink, and enjoy your labor while you can. And in verse 24, he says, this, I, I perceive this was from the hand of God. I want you to take that, that phrase right there. He says, I, I believe this is from the hand of God. I want you to take that and I want you to put it into your right pocket. Remember that one. You can't control what God gives you. You can't control what God takes away from you. So just enjoy what comes when it comes. This is also vanity and vexation of spirit, but it is what it is. That's his conclusion. And in chapter 3, he expounds on this conclusion. And he transitions from talking about his own experiences. And he starts talking about some observations that he's having. He says, I want you to consider... Everything in this life has a season. Everything in this life has a time. There's a time to be born, but there's also a time to die. There's a time to plant, but there's also a time to reap. There's a time to break down, and there's a time to build up. He gives 14 contrasting times. And then he says, think about it. No matter what you do, you have no control over what time you're in. When it's time to be born, you're going to be born. When it's time to die, you're going to die. Say all you want. I don't want to give right now. I want to get. Good luck. If it's time to give, it's time to give. You have no control over it because God is the one who determines what time it is. And no matter what you do or no matter how you may try, you will never understand God's timing. And ain't that the truth? And that's what Solomon is bringing out. That's why I believe, he says in 12 and 13, that's why I believe that there is no better thing to do in this life than eat, drink, and enjoy what comes your way. And look in the last part of verse 13. What does he say? It is the gift of God. Take that. Also put that in your right pocket. In verse 14 and 15, whatever God does... It will never change. We can't add to it. We can't take away from it. And God made it that way so that we would fear him. God made life unpredictable so that we would look to him. 
God brought different times in this life so that we would depend on him. But, Solomon says, instead of men submitting to this order that God has put in life, men spend their whole life trying to overthrow that order. And he says in verse, uh, let me see here, verse 16, I saw under the sun the place of judgment that wickedness was there and the place of righteousness that iniquity was there. When I look in places of judgment and righteousness where people are supposed to be doing everything they can to support God's order, they're trying to turn it on their head. Now, it's right here where we get a little glimpse of hope from Solomon. I mean, he's obviously got some, some wrong thoughts right now. But we see a little glimpse of hope right here, even though it's short-lived. Okay, look at what he says in verse 17. I said in mine heart, you know what that means? I thought to myself. I thought to myself, I said in mine heart, God shall judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time there for every purpose and for every work. I said in mine heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them and that they may see, that they might see that they themselves are beasts. I said in my heart, there must be a time when God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There's a time for everything else. So there must be a time for a final judgment, especially when I look around and see how much man is messing it up. There's got to be a time for that. And perhaps God allows such wickedness in men so that we can understand just how bad we really are, that we are really no better than the beasts. And think about it. A man dies just like a beast dies, is what he says. So at the end of the day, since we both go down to the same place after we die, how is man any better than a beast? Now, we say at this point, well, Solomon, man has a soul. Beast doesn't have a soul. Man has an eternity. A beast does not. But look at what he says in verse 21. Who knoweth? Who knoweth the spirit of man that goeth upward and the spirit of the beast that goeth downward to the earth? So we come back at him and say, man is better than a beast, Solomon, because man has an eternal soul. And he says, so how can you know that? Therefore, I conclude in verse 22, this is why I perceive there is nothing better than for a man to just enjoy this life as it comes. That is his portion. Stop. Remember at the beginning, I said there were portions of this book that can come across very skeptical. And this is one of those portions, and it's heartbreaking to read. This is the son of David who seems to be giving the impression that he does, he's not even sure that there's an eternity. Who knows if man's spirit is going to go upward and if a beast spirit goes downward? Who knows that there's a difference after? This is horrible. But in 1 Kings 11:4, listen to what the Bible says about Solomon. It came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. The son of David is asking, who knows? Who knows about eternity? So live for today. 
But church, listen to me. Listen to me. This is what happens to anybody when we get away from God. Nobody is above this. When eternity is not in view, when we do not keep eternity in view, man's motto always becomes, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In chapter 4, he continues with his observations. And again, all for the purpose of supporting this idea that life under the sun is vanity. He says, I I observed people who were oppressed, and I observed the people who were doing the oppressing. And the oppressed people had nobody there to comfort them. But then the oppressing people, sure, they had power over the others, but they were alone, just like the people that they were oppressing. So what's the point in having power over people if you're alone as much as the people that you're oppressing? said, I observed something else in verse 4 through 6. I saw people who spend their lives working, but all it did was make other people envious of them. And then on the other hand, I see a fool who spends his entire life doing nothing to the point where it completely destroys him, and yet it's better to have a little with quietness than to have both hands full with travail and vexation of spirit So what is the point in spending your entire life trying to get, 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 when all it brings you is trouble, when the fool who does nothing lives a quieter life? He observed something else. He said, one time, I saw people who spent their whole life working, but all their busyness only brought them loneliness. It never brought them satisfaction. It never brought them rest. And they never stopped to realize, I am working so hard that I have isolated myself from everybody else. So Solomon says, what's the point of working so hard that you're alone and you have nobody to share your life with? Two are better than one. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. He gives a story. He says, I saw an old, foolish king be overthrown by a poor, wise child. This poor child came from the prison to reign, and that man went from the palace down to absolutely nothing. I mean, what a story. That's an incredible story. And Solomon says, but then I thought, someone will eventually take the kingdom from that poor, wise child, and the generations that follow after aren't going to care about his story. So what's the point of having such a great accomplishment when nobody is going to care about it in a couple hundred years? Is anybody else depressed at the moment? In chapter 5, he starts talking about some problems that he has with religious people. He's observing religious people. And the problems that he has are certainly valid, and he offers some great advice, but he still has the wrong idea of life, and I'll show you. He saw people who were more willing to talk to God than listen to God. He says, God is in heaven and you are on earth. Let your words be few. Why don't you be more willing to listen to the Lord than talk to the Lord? No, that's not saying we shouldn't pray. And, and it's not saying that reading your Bible is more important than prayer. What's more important, breathing in or breathing out? You need them both. But again, Solomon is just, he's seeing people walk into church and all they're doing is talk, 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 and they won't listen. 
And then he's seeing people who are so willing to vow to God all the time. I vow this, I vow that, I vow that, and then they won't keep their vows. He's saying, well, so what's the point of vowing if you're not going to keep your vows? When you give a vow to the Lord, why don't you keep them? And he cautions against this, and he calls it foolishness. And he says, instead, you should fear the Lord. Now, that's good. That's a good thing. But again, he has the wrong idea. Look in verse 6. Look at what he says. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Oh, yeah, I vowed that, but I didn't really mean it that way. No, don't say that. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy what? The work of thy hands. Remember, in his mind right now, what is, take it out of your pocket, what is God's gift to man? Eat, drink, and enjoy this life. So he's basically saying, don't give God a reason through your religion to be angry with you because then he may destroy everything that you worked for in this life. And then what are you going to have? In verse 8 and 9, he gives another observation. He says, when you see one man oppressing another man, remember these things. First of all, don't be surprised. Second of all, God sees what they're doing. Third of all, remember that those who are doing the oppressing, he says this, there are higher than they. So maybe that one person has this idea that they have found purpose in life because they are able to lord over somebody else. And Solomon's saying, well, guess what? There is always somebody who has more power over you than you have other people. So if you think that you're finding your purpose by having your little area of lordship, have you ever walked into like a mom and pop sh store and there's a manager that's been working there for like 35 years? And I mean, that is their spot. That's not going to bring you purpose. He talks about wealth and greed. And, and he's saying, what's the purpose of it? This is what he asks. He says, I want you to think about this. The more you love something, the more you want it, right? But then the more you want something, the less you're satisfied when you get it. As, and, and how about this, parents? He says, as soon as you increase in goods, there's going to be more mouths to feed lining up. So it's going to come, it's going to leave as quickly as it came. And the more you labor for wealth, this one really gets me. He says, the more you labor for wealth, do you know what a rich person wants to do more than anything? Sleep. Just shut off. The more you labor for wealth, the more you want to rest. But because you have so much wealth, it won't let you rest. You can't sleep. Constantly. So Solomon knows what he's talking about. He's, he's observed all these things, but it's, it's giving him this skewed perspective. And again, he says, so what profit was all the labor when I have seen people hoard up wealth only for them to lose it in a moment? What profit is all the labor? He's labored for the wind. He spent his whole life eating in darkness and sorrow and wrath just so that he can get, 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 and you can't take any of it with you. So, here's my conclusion again. I believe that our portion in this life is to eat and drink and enjoy the good of our labor while we can. When God gives you the opportunity to obtain, and then he says this, and then when he gives you the power to eat thereof, you better just enjoy it. You better just take it as you can get it. It is the gift of God. Put it in your pocket. Now, how many times 
has he said that now? Three times he has said, eating, drinking, just enjoying life down here is the gift of God. Put it in your pocket. When God allows you to obtain, and when God gives you the power to eat thereof, man, just, just enjoy it. But wait a second. Solomon thinks of something else. Look at how he starts chapter 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. I'm here telling you, just enjoy when the Lord allows you to obtain, and when he gives you the power to eat thereof, just enjoy it. He said, but I've noticed something, and it's really common. A lot of times the Lord will give somebody an opportunity to, to obtain, but he won't give them the power to enjoy it. He won't give them the power to eat thereof. In fact, they gain, 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 and somebody else benefits from it. So God may allow you to obtain, but then may not give you the power to enjoy it. So this is also vanity and vexation of spirit. And he presents a very depressing argument. He says, you could live a great long life with a hundred children and yet die alone. So <laughs> wouldn't it be better for you just to die at birth? That's the question he asks. The one who works his whole life has nothing but vanity, but the one who has an untimely birth never has to deal with an empty life. And whether you live for 2,000 years or you die on the day of your birth, you're both going to die. So between the choice of living a pointless life or just getting it over with, Solomon says you may as well just get it over with. Therefore, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the desire. Why don't you just spend your life, however much you have, happy with what you have rather than always wanting something else? Now, that's a good truth. But again, you can see he's just, what's wrong with his spirit? He's got a wrong idea. He's got a wrong perspective. And what he's noticing is that the more man lives for this life under the sun, the more conscious he becomes of the vanity and vexation of it all. It just doesn't mean anything, especially when you realize you can't control it and you can't understand it. So here we're coming down to our last chapter for the night. He says, since you can't control life, since you can't understand it, just accept it. And make the best of what God gives you in this life. Maybe you'll never have riches, but maybe God gives you a good name. Well, a good name is actually better than precious ointment. And he starts naming all these things that are better. The day of death is better than the day of birth. And we're thinking, what? But again, he's thinking that life is vanity. He continues here. It's better to be rebuked by a wise man than to be serenaded by a fool. It's better to look ahead than to look behind. It's better to leave behind wisdom than leave behind money. And he kind of concludes, he says, when you have prosperity from God, enjoy it. When you have adversity from God, think about why. God allows both adversity and prosperity in this life, and there's nothing that you can do to change that. So you may as well just accept it. And he says, I have seen righteous people die young. I've seen wicked people live full lives all the way to the grave. 
what happened to Job. A righteous person was punished. And so they thought he was wicked. Well, he was wrong. And Solomon's saying, well, I've seen that as well. I've seen righteous people die young. And I've seen wicked people live long, healthy lives. Life under the sun is confusing. It's out of our control. And that's why I will never satisfy it. It's, it's vanity. And he said, and I'll be honest with you, from verse 16 to verse 29, I spent about three hours in my study. And I got from understanding it about zero to understanding it about 0. .0001. So I'm not going to come to you and say, I know exactly what he's talking about here. It is, it's confusing. Now, God is not the author of confusion. He will give light in its time. But I'm not going to try to tell you that I have a 5,000 lumen lamp up here when I've, I've got a match that I can barely strike. Here's what I see from this in chapter 7. He's, for instance, look, look at these verses right here. Do you, do you understand what he's meaning in, in verse 15? All things have I seen in the days of my vanity. There is a just man that perisheth in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man that prolongeth his life in his wickedness. Be not righteous overmuch, neither make thyself overwise. Why shouldest thou destroy thyself? Be not overmuch wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? Church, I've got no clue. Some people, some people are saying, he's basically saying everything in moderation. Don't be too righteous. Don't be too wise. Don't be too wicked. Don't be too foolish. His viewpoint is so skewed right now that it's, it's possible. But here, here's kind of what I see from it. Because you have seen a righteous man die young, and you've seen a wicked man live his entire life, I think he's bringing out this, and I could be very wrong. I think he's bringing out this. Don't believe that your righteousness or wisdom can save you from problems. On the other hand, that doesn't mean you should just go off and be over much wicked and over foolish. It's not just a license to go and do whatever you want. And remember, he had tried both wisdom and folly. And what did he come to the conclusion to? Wisdom excelleth folly more than the light excelleth darkness. So he's tried both of them, and he's saying, well, you, you should be wise. And then look at what he says in verse 18. It is good that thou shouldest take hold of this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all. You should choose wisdom over folly. We should live in the fear of the Lord because wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men, he says in verse 19. And then he says in verse 20, remember, there are no just men upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. And he gives an illustration. He says, you can get all upset about somebody talking behind your back, but be honest, you've talked about people behind their back too. And between the choice of wisdom and folly, you should choose wisdom. Now stop. Did Solomon always live in the fear of the Lord? No. Between wisdom and folly, did he always choose wisdom? And it put him in the position that he's in now. 
he is in a position where he is telling others to fear the Lord, perhaps because he knows firsthand what happens to you when you stop. He's in the position where he's telling others to live by wisdom. But look at what's happening to him. Look in verse 23. All this have I proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. That which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it out? I applied mine heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the, the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets and her hands as bands. We just went through Proverbs. Who is he talking about? Oh, yeah. You're, yes, you're following along. Whoso pleaseth God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be taken by her. Behold, this have I found, saith the preacher, counting, counting one by one to find out the account, which yet my soul seeketh, but I find not. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. What I see there is he sought for wisdom, but he couldn't find her. And he says, as I sought for wisdom, all I found was a woman that was more bitter than death, whose heart is snares and nets and her hands are as bands. Those that please God will escape from her, but the sinner will be taken by her. And even though I keep seeking, I still can't Find wisdom. It would be easier to find one man in a group of a thousand, but I cannot find wisdom. This have I found. God hath made man upright, but man has sought out many inventions. Now listen, and I'm done. God warned us that this would happen. Would you turn to Proverbs chapter 1? What is happening with Solomon? What is going on? Why is he in a position where he's telling other people to fear the Lord and other people to find wisdom, but he's saying, but I can't find her? Verse 24. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. Who's talking here? Wisdom. But ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me, for that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my proof. Therefore, shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. Do you think that's what's happening with Solomon right now? 
God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions rather than seeking for wisdom. And what did we say at the beginning? The question that many people ask is if Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, then how could he be so foolish? 1,000 women, 700 wives, 300 concubines, and each one was for political purposes and brought in their own false god. Solomon brought in Molech, where people were sacrificing their own children in the fire in Jerusalem. Solomon, how could this happen? How could he be so foolish? Remember what a fool is. What is a fool? A fool is somebody who knows better and chooses not to do it. So therefore, you cannot be a fool before first given a chance to be wise. And even though he truly was the wisest man who ever lived, he chose to start living for life under the sun rather than living for eternity. And the more he lived for life under the sun, the more he amassed under the sun. But the more he amassed under the sun, the more he lost sight of eternity. And the more he lost sight of eternity, the more he came to realize that life under the sun doesn't satisfy. This is the honest testimony of a man who lost his view of eternity. He lost his fear of the Lord and therefore started to believe that his only portion, the gift of God, is just to live for the here and now. And here's our application. When we have that stunted view of life, we are going to come up with some really dumb ideas and we are going to make some horrible decisions that you will regret for the rest of your life. And as much as Solomon lost his view of eternity, trust me, your daily decisions don't only echo in your life under the sun. They stick with you in eternity. 1 Peter 4 says this, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Thank you for listening to our audio preaching podcast. For more information about our ministries, or if you would like to get in contact with us, please visit our website at heritagebaptistcctx.org. May God bless you as you go forward with the gospel this week.